but to be a uh, synthesis for change, um, to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you've called us to, your eternal glory. And so we entrust to you this morning the power of your, of your word. And Lord, as we pray for our local churches one by one in our area, in our community, we think this morning of the Pursuit Church, and we pray for um, Pastor Nate as he uh, leads that particular church and that ministry there. I pray that uh, the word of God would go forth in power. I pray that there would be um, uh, greater and greater uh, fervency uh, here uh, as we pray for all our churches um, to uh, see the word of God change, to see it scatter, to see it multiply, to see disciples made uh, there in the vicinity uh, of Rockland. And Lord, I thank you for um, what you do. I ask for wisdom to our political leaders, our nation. Our, think of our, um, our head of the, uh, the, the CDC and the, these various other officials that many times work behind the scenes that we're um, seeing more now publicly um, because of the issue in our country. And Lord, I ask that you would um, give them the wisdom uh, to uh, rightly um, uh, help and, uh, and, and govern our, our particular nation. Thank you, Lord, that you're on the throne and that uh, any other nation, any other government is simply uh, installed because uh, of your great uh, power and your authority. Put our trust in that this morning in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 5. You'll notice as we're going to focus on verses 8 through 11 and think about how to thrive in Babylon, thrive in a, in a world where uh, we are uh, not the major players in this world. Uh, in a world where we are having, uh, where, where Christianity is, is pushed to the margins, and it's always been that way. We're just kind of discovering that now in our culture a little bit more. Um, we've been enjoying for many, many years some of the privileges we've enjoyed as, with uh, with some of the biblical principles that have been put in place. Um, but that's never guaranteed to be forever in any, any country, and I don't know that it ever has been. Things change, and so the. Peter, the Apostle Peter, has written to these churches in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He calls strangers, exiles, scattered about through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Cappadocia, and other places. And he's showing them that this is the true grace in which they stand, which we'll see in verses 10 and 11. A church that is, has, has had seen pr- uh, pressures and, and things that are, are, that are starting to really squeeze on them. And he's showing that this is how you thrive in Babylon. This is how you treat your enemies. This is how you live with one another as believers. This is how you respond to authorities. This is how you, uh, this is how you uh, uh, think and you act during suffering. And he was reminded them uh, several things in chapter 1 of the roots, their union in Christ, that they're in Christ and Christ is in them. And this will never change despite circumstances changing. And then in chapter 2, he, he, he uh, explicitly shares the purpose of their lives in the church and, and uh, that they're to show forth and proclaim the goodness of God to those who ask for reason of the hope that's in them. And then in chapter 3, he's built on this and show how families and marriages are to be strengthened and built and how to respond when, when someone accuses us falsely or persecutes us and how we're to act in our, in, our, in, our, in our daily lives among the lost and with each other. And it was reminded us in our suffering in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, to never forget your baptism. Never forget what baptism did, what it, what, what it marked you out as and what you were saying in your baptism. 
Reminding you of that symbol there that shows the eternal power that it was at work with you at your salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he's gone into again this idea of how to arm yourselves with the correct thinking and actions here in suffering. And he said, very interestingly, um, in chapter 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of the world is coming. And do some very practical, simple things in light of that. He says, in essence, as Martin Luther said, if I knew the end of the world was coming, I would still plant my apple tree. To have fervency, to be serious, clear-minded, to pray, to have fervent charity among yourselves, forgiving attitude, use hospitality one to another without grudging, as you receive the gift of God, to use those gifts for others. Because the end of the world is near. Because of those very things. And then he has said um, at the end of chapter 4 and verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit or entrust the keeping of their souls to him. And he says this, In well-doing, in doing well, in doing good works, is what the phrase means in the original language, as to a faithful creator. So don't hunker down because the end of the world, because Jesus is going to return soon, thrive, multiply, as to a faithful creator. And then in chapter 5, he's talked about these leaders in this early church, who they're to be, that they're the minister in the right spirit, they're the minister for the right motives. And then in verses um, uh, 5 through 7, we saw last time, that the congregation's response is to have a, a spirit of humility in serving one another, and to actually cast yourselves on the shoulders of the one who can carry you because he cares for you more than you can care for yourself. We always hear about self-care. You can't, can't care for others if you don't care for yourself. And there's a little bit of truth to that, but the reality is what really needs to happen is we need to die to ourselves so that we can live the righteousness and properly serve others. And it happens by putting our trust and cares and worries and anxieties in the hands of God for he cares for you. And so it leads us up to this passage here where he talks about lions. In the United States, mountain lions are the animal that's been regarded as the number one human predator. Um, author and naturalist Craig Childs, he was on foot doing research on mountain lions in Arizona's Blue Range wilderness. And he approached a water hole from downwind and he spotted a mountain lion drinking water. And the lion didn't notice that he was there, his presence. And it finished drink, drinking and it walked slowly away into a cluster of junipers. And just a few minutes later, Childs walked back to that water hole to identify the tracks in the mud and take some notes here as a wildlife biologist. And he bent down to look closer and he scanned the perimeter. And there in the shadows of the junipers, 30 feet away, he sees a pair of eyes. And he expected that lion to run away but it actually walked out of the junipers into the sunlight toward him. And he pulled his knife <laughs> and stares into the eyes of the lion. He knows what he has to do, and he knows what he must not do, and here is what he writes. Now, what would your instinct be? A lion staring at you, walking toward you, mountain lion. Well, mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, eight, nine times their size. And their method is to attack from behind to clamp onto the spine at the base of that prey skull, to snap the spine. And the top few vertebrae are the target, because they house the respiratory and the motor skills there that cease instantly, of course, when that cord is cut in the struggling of that prey. 
And mountain lions have stalked people for miles. By the way, there's no mountain lions in Maine, right? <laughs> One woman survived an attack and escaped by foot on the road, and the lion uh, shortcut that road several miles farther down and killed her. By the way, I'm not saying all this to scare you about mountain lions. <laughs> because wildlife biologists in Maine say there are no mountain lions in Maine. And if there are, they're probably just pets. That were released. <laughs> so here's what Craig Childs did. He says, he writes this, I hold firm to my ground and do not even intimate that I will back off. If I run, it is certain I will have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground. The canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. He said, the mountain lion begins to move to my left, and I turn, keeping my face on it, my knife at my right side. It paces to my right, trying to get around on my other side to get behind me. I turn right, staring at it. My stare is about the only defense that I have. <laughs> and then he maintains that, that defense as the mountain lion continues to try to provoke him to run. Turning left, turning right, back and forth again and again. And now the mountain lion is only ten feet away from me to you, Jace. And finally that standoff ends. That lion turns and he walks away. He was defeated by a man who knew what never to do in its presence. And Peter the Apostle here has a similar knowledge of his greatest adversary, Satan and his demons. Because he knows Satan's methods, he knows how to defend himself. And here's what he tells us. Number one, stay tuned in. Stay tuned in. Look at the verse, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil has a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. That word sober, it means stay mentally self-controlled. That's like Chris here in the story here. The word vigilant, it means to be awake and watchful. Now, was there a apostle who would know what it meant to be watchful and pray? Like Peter? Yeah. Remember in the garden? He learned the lesson there that night, right? He ended up denying the Savior the evening. He wasn't watchful. He wasn't sober. He wasn't vigilant here. But notice how Peter describes, he says, this is the, your adversary. The word adversary is used in the Greek language about an accuser in a courtroom. Someone who you would be facing who would have a lawsuit against you, an accuser in the courtroom. And he says, your adversary is the devil. That word devil is the idea of a slanderer, someone who falsely accuses you. Romans 12 tells us he is accuser of the brethren, right? But notice how this lion is working here. He is walking around, and he is roaring. He is looking for someone he can devour. The word is the idea of swallow in one gulp, literally drink up, swallow in one gulp. And this is very interesting, because when we think of Satan, we think of the cunning craftiness, frightened the serpentine, uh, actions that he has. But this lion is obviously not trying to be very subtle. What is he doing? He's roaring. Now, you would think, if a lion wants to eat someone, like a Chevy with that mountain lion who sneaked up on that lady, you think he would sneak up at them instead of roaring. In fact, obviously that's the way the devil is described in other places. He's like a snake. He is subtle. He can fasten on your heel before you know he's there. 
He doesn't, he doesn't roar sometimes. He hides his slithers. But here he's roaring. Why is he doing that? Why is he like that? Well, he is dangerous because he's subtle and he's quiet. He's hidden. And the Bible tells us he can transform himself into an angel of light. But that's not the case here. There is a danger here that Peter is highlighting about the devil that is another reason. A lion is dangerous not mainly because it sneaks, but mainly because he's strong. He's strong. Even if you know it's there, you're a goner unless you have a power that's, that's greater than your own, like a rifle. Right? Or, in this case, God. So Peter's point here is not the, de- the devil's subtlety or craftiness, like other passages here, but his point is the devil's power. You might say, what is his power? <clears throat> well, the idea in this context here, in this passage here, he has a power to persecute the brethren. He has a power to inflict suffering on the brethren. Notice what was said in the following verse. This one who are to be sober and be vigilant, stay focused about Verse 9, who resists steadfast in the faith, knowing what? Here's the context here of, his, of, of, of this passage here, the devil's a wrong lion, that the same what? Afflictions. Afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Here's the problem here. The power here is the roaring jaws of this lion are the suffering of believers. And friends, this is true all over the globe. Where the church of Christ is being persecuted and suffering, it is the roaring of the lion, shaking his head, causing fear. Resist him. The roaring jaws of the lion are the sufferings of believers. And these jaws are designed by Satan for the devouring of believers' faith. If you turn with me to Revelation 2.10, you see a picture of this. In one of those churches in Asia Minor, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the church of Smyrna, which by the way later on would have a, a leader there, a pastor there named Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who would be martyred, and several would be martyred in his church for the faith. And John writes to this church in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, he says this, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful to death and I will give thee a crown of life. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Well, what are you about to suffer? The devil is about to cast some of you in the prison so you'll be tested. You're going to have tribulation ten days. Trials ten days. Be faithful to death and I'll give you the crown of life. In other words, Satan will be the one who will throw some in prison and some will die there. But if they are faithful unto death, right, resist and firm in their faith, John says there, they're going to live forever. Right? Or as Peter will say here in verse 10, they're going to be perfected, confirmed, strengthened, established. The real, the real deal. Which means here, this, um, resisting the devil, and this passage here, does not necessarily mean that he can't kill you. It only means he cannot do ultimate harm. In other words, he can only kill you. Jesus says this, Fear not them that have the power of the body. Fear him as the power of the soul. And he can't do this without God's permission. Think Job. Right? 
So there's a difference here between Satan as a snake and now here Satan as a lion. He's sneaky as a snake, but his lionness is, is his direct attack and suffering. And the thing about suffering is that usually it, it doesn't sneak up on you, right? Um, it's just there in your face. And the hardest thing about suffering is that it can tempt you to want to, to so, so that you can be tempted to be overwhelmed with fear and pain. That dominates you. It can destroy your faith that God does really care. That he has even any power to help. That he's even present and exists. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do to you in trials and persecution. And that's why Peter says, be alert to that. Know that as you're going into it. That's why the lying is roaring. It's a power of suffering uh, here to destroy our faith. There's a, there's a potential there. So the point of verse 8, be sober, be on the alert, be, be, be vigilant, is not because the lion is going to sneak up on you. He's roaring. It's that you hear the voice of the true lion over the imposter lion's roars. I say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? It, it is just being alert to an enemy isn't enough? Well, how do I fight? Well, I want you to look at the verse there that follows in verse 9. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So the second point is this. Not only stay tuned in, be alert to his methods here, but stand in the truth with the brotherhood. Your brothers, your sisters. In other words, you're not alone. You have an enemy, you're opposed, but you're also not alone. The Lord is the true lion. Hosea 11 talks about this. He says, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, and his sons will come trembling from the west. The devil roars to show his power in persecution. But let's be reminded, friends, just like Job, that lion is under the lion's paw. The true lion rules by the living word of God that governs his universe. It's by his word that he's called the universe into existence. That he calls us into him and he sustains us to stand and withstand. So the weapon then to stand against the devil is to resist him by standing in the truth with, shoulder to shoulder, the ranks of believers who have over the centuries. We sang a song here, O Church Arise, and it talked about the, 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 the lines of saints, right, uh, who, who, who we can stand with here over the centuries. Ranks of believers. That word steadfast is actually a Greek military term. It was used for the Greek phalanx, which were the elite infantry of the, of the Greek uh, soldiers. They were a large group. They were heavily armed, heavily shielded. They were infantry. They were formed in rank and file, and they were in deep rows, and they would stand close and deep to each other, shoulder to shoulder here. And he said, withstand in that way. But notice the steadfastness here. It's the steadfastness of not just your faith, but the faith, the body of truth that God has poured us into in our salvation. The body of truth that Christians have been poured into, namely, that we are in Christ, we are dead to our old way, and we are alive to the resurrection in Christ by the Spirit as adopted sons of God. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he uh, rehashes the gospel and its truths. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 
For I delivered to you, first of all, or of first importance, that which I also received, probably from Peter, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church of Christ. And notice here what he says. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God that saved him continues to be with him. And so Paul can say this in verse 1 of chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. By which also you are being saved, is the next verse. Your sanctification, it, it, it holds you here. Steadfastness here. And Paul, Peter wants us to understand in 1 Peter chapter 5 there, the resisting and the standing and the truth here is that what you have experienced in trials has been experienced through the centuries by other believers who we can line up, many of whom we will not know by name in this life, right? But by other believers who God has enabled to stay true to his word, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We are not alone. And even today, there are believers who are around the world who are being tested right now severely for their faith. Who by God's truth, by their faith in God's truth that has been imprinted on their hearts, are standing firm today in spite of severe persecution. And what Peter wants us to know is this. You can too, by knowing the truth and counting it as a steadfast rock to stand on and then putting your feet upon it as the evil one roars, you can withstand him and look him in the eyes. Not with your knife, but with the sword of the Spirit. Not in your own power, but because of what God has said. And so, this is hard. We know this and... And, and where some of us are, are, have been in trials or coming out of trials or are going to walk into a trial, and you might ask, is there an end to it? Is there a meaning to it? Will it end? And look what he says in verse 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle you to him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, not only stand in the truth here with your brotherhood, but trust the process here of what God is doing. And here in verse 10 and 11, this is like you watch the July 4th fireworks and everybody waits for the fireworks for the what? This is the grand finale. He's going to have four things that are just going to pop up here and say, fix your eyes on the prize here. It will help you trust the process here of your growing he says, the God of all grace, the God who is the source of all undeserved kindness and strength. The God who is the source of all this has called you, his voice and his word has summoned us to a forever radiance and eternal glory, forever radiance and brilliance that is his. He has made us partakers of his God nature, Peter says. 
He has called us to His glory, and He will get His glory. If you're walking through a trial and you're wondering, how, am, how is this going to happen? It's going to happen by you standing on the truth in faith. And friends, Jesus says, no one's going to pluck you out of His hand. Jesus is going to receive His glory. And you can bank on that. And you can walk in that. He's going to finish the task. But notice what the verse says. The God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by, or the word is in, but Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. So he has done this for us in Christ. Through your faith in Christ, God looks at you as his eternal son. And an eternal bond that outweighs any honor that the world can give. And he is bringing you on a process here in this life of greater and greater glory that one day will culminate in a new creation in an eternal kingdom with no glory, no sin, no curse, and the beauty of the presence of God who is the good Father, the incarnate Son, and the comforting Holy Spirit as we shall see Him as He is. Notice the eternal glory is His eternal glory that He is sharing with us. Christian suffering, in other words, will last, compared to the expanse of eternity, only a little while, is how Peter says it. While their glory in Christ, to which they were called, will be what? Forever. Forever. This is Peter's last use here of glory in this letter. And he uses it eight times. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. Listen to these words. As the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Go to verse 11. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, would it testify beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Go with me to verse 21. Who by him do believe in God and raise him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Flip over to verse 24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is a flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, comparing man's glory with God's glory. Chapter 2 and verse 20. For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. What's true glory and what's false glory here? And then chapter 4 and verse 14. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Simon Pete, excuse me, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a sharer, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed in them here in verse 10. What's the point of all of this? Notice that phrase that after describing the glory, the joy that we're going to receive one day fully, that word after. That's the part we don't like, right? After. The promise to come is so precious because of the right now little while. We're in the purple heart stage right now. Why do you get the purple heart? Because you have a battle scar. Significant, right? That there's pain and suffering. This week, 
a former student of mine, former basketball player on the team that I coached, teen in the youth group that I helped disciple, and his wife, Abigail. Um, their four-year-old um, daughter, Samantha. She had been under the weather last Friday and Saturday. And she perked up on Sunday. Monday morning, she was a little lethargic, so they called the doctor. And he couldn't see her till late afternoon Monday. He assessed her and he sent her to the hospital, which was right next door. And when she arrived in the ER, she coded. And they were unable to revive her. And today her funeral is posted at four. Those are battle scars. To say that is an understatement, isn't it? That is what, what Peter says in chapter 5 and verse 10. That is after that you have suffered a while. That's that you have suffered a while. They're never going to get over that. God's going to help them through it. Because Tim and Abigail have a strong faith in Christ. But they're not going to get over it. But one day when they cross that threshold of glory, they're going to see the eternal glory that God worked through. They're not seeing it now. They might see little specks of it, little spots of it. And we might be comforted a little bit by saying, well, look what God's doing through this, right? That doesn't bring Samantha back. It's going to be hard. It's devastating. It was their only child. But look what's going to happen. Look what he says in verse 10. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, strengthened, settled. Let me explain those words really quickly here. Perfect isn't the idea of completeness and maturity like other times it's used here. It's actually a word that's used in Ephesians 4 to equip the saints. It's a word used of Peter and John who are mending their nets, taking something that was broken and restoring it here. It's like when I go to the chiropractor, right? Got a pain in my back. Takes me, lays me on the bench, presses in my back, does the percussor, and you know, etc. Here, he's taking something and he's putting it back together again, so it functions more purely. That's the idea. That through your suffering, God is equipping you in this process here that we are to trust. He's equipping you in greater capacity to shine for God. He is polishing you more with. With hard sandpaper here to reflect his glory. That word established, it means to be grounded on a solid foundation so that you can't be easily shaken. And then strengthened and settled are pretty self-explanatory. We say, okay, that was nice. This is a great letter. It was written to these churches. What did it do? How did the scripture that Peter wrote affect these churches in Asia Minor? Was there power in these words that really worked as these believers put their faith in this? Well, I want to tell you, none of us know any of the names of the leaders of this church in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, these elders, these pastors. And we don't know the name of the con- names of the congregation who are written to here. But if you study church history, it shows us very clearly that this specific region of the world in Asia Minor would become the cradle and bastion of Christian truth in the first 400 years of Christian history. And it became the meeting place for some of the great early councils of the faith that hammered out the fundamental doctrines of the faith for the Church of Jesus Christ. 
by even the second century, so basically the next generation after Peter writes to them, there were flourishing, well-grounded, establishing churches in these areas Peter wrote that are recorded in history. And you don't have to use your imagination here to know that these words of sustaining truth anchored deep in their hearts and empowered these earliest Christians of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and the humility and the power under persecution and the kindness of grace that the Lord Jesus did indeed supply generation after generation after generation. Just as he has done for our oldest generations and continues to do today. And so let's continue to build on that today. So when Satan roars in your face and threatens to devour you and sink his jaws into your faith, there's a couple things you need to remember. Don't say this, oh, I'm eternally secure, I don't need to fight. Right? No. But say this, these words in 1 Peter 5. I am secure in Christ. And the God of grace who has called me to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. After I have suffered a little while from your claws and your fangs, he will perfect and he will confirm and he will strengthen and he will establish me because he is a God of all grace. He is a God of absolute dominion. You can maul me, you can kill me, you cannot devour me. Because he has called me to his glory and he will get me to glory. He will finish the task. And that, brothers and sisters, is how to resist him firm in your faith. And you can take this promise with you in this season, can't you? Because that is what marks you out as a person of hope in our Lord. Rest in it. Fight with it. Press on with it. It is yours free because of Jesus. So live in it. Let's pray.